Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that Russ Kostrick joins us in the studio, BlackRock Global Allocation Fund Portfolio Manager. Good morning to you, Russ. Good morning, Jonathan. Where do you fall on that debate right now? That's the big one of the last couple of weeks that maybe peak pessimism is behind us, Treasury yields have bottomed, the bottoms are in for 2019. What are your thoughts? I think it's probably right. Uh, You've taken a lot of tail risk out of the market the last month. You've made progress on trade, and it's not a permanent deal, but it will at least alleviate some of the tension. The risk of a hard exit has gone down. The economic numbers appear to be stabilized, and you're having a decent earnings season. So, you know, going into a seasonally strong part of the year, it's not unreasonable to say you probably have seen the low in bond yields for the year. I'm going to give credit to Jeffries, I believe, as there's an outlier call that maybe they won't do something here at this meeting tomorrow and that they'll wait out to December because we see so much good that we see so much good in the equity market as well. Define a lousy economy. The, surve- the uh, surveillance, excuse me, the Bloomberg statistic is 1.6%. I hear people at 1.8% uh, GDP and on and on and on. How bad does the economy need to be for further rate cuts? Well, I think you've got to compare to what's trend these days. And let's call it 2% growth because, you know, there's a little rounding error around all of this. 2% is trend. You know, we're in an environment where demographics are very different than 30 or 40 years ago. To get to the type of 3.5% growth that was normal back then, you need the sugar high of the type of tax cut we had in 2017. Without that, 2% is about normal. I mean, John, I just looked to be sure the number hadn't moved from yesterday. We're still at 1.6% GDP growth, many others at one8 I mean, is, is that clear as solid economy? You mentioned Jeffries. Jeffries will be joining me on the uh, the TV show a little bit later this morning. One of looking your other properties. Ca- looking forward to yeah. catching up with them on that call of no rate cut potentially coming tomorrow. Russ, I'd love to get your insight just a little bit more on this topic at the moment. How vulnerable is that call? that the worst is behind us? Because it seems to have picked up with some real enthusiasm over the last couple of weeks without much data to back it up. Well, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, one of the reasons people are comfortable with the call is that we know manufacturing is struggling. You're arguably in a global manufacturing recession, but people, I think justifiably, feel very good about the U.S. consumer. And whether you look at real earnings, whether you look at the savings rate, whether you look at debt levels, everything tells you the consumer's in decent shape. Now, if you started to see a slowdown in hiring and that started to transmit to confidence, you might have to revisit that call. But that's not our base case. I think as long as the consumer is still growing at the pace it is, you can be reasonably confident we're not on the cusp of a recession. Let's get some capital allocation calls. We've seen these kind of levels a few times through 2019. We've tested 3,000 a couple of times, three times through 2019. High yield spreads sitting right on top of the tights of the year at 354 basis points. Tights of the year, 346. We've seen this level a few times this year. We haven't been able to hold it. Why is this time different? We have. And I think it's, it's a great question. Look, you know, it's still, you have to, the market's got to prove that you can break out of this range. And this range is really now going on almost two years. We set the boundary, or at least the high back in, in, in early 18, at least globally. Uh, my guess is you've got a little bit more support this time because some of the things that have inhibited the rally 
over the last year and a half, two years, is starting to fade. Most importantly, trade. If you get a truce that's been one of the things that's been inhibiting the market from breaking out, that's one factor that might let you move on to new highs. And again, I think signs that the global economy is stabilizing. We're not talking about a, sh- a sharp surge higher. That should also help yeah. kind of edge higher through the remainder of the year. What do you say about the breadth of the market? If you look at the value line geometric index, which is great mathematics on the median stock of the median equity market, the trend ain't so hot compared to the big fangs, the big tech move we've seen as well. And there's been a sharp split there over the last year. There has been a slip, and I think this is indicative of a couple things, one of which is we're still very much in a winner-take-all economy where you've got some businesses, including some of the FANG businesses, that are in secular growth mode, whether you're talking about cloud computing, internet retail, and you've got large parts of the market, uh, let's take multi-line retail, that are just challenged from a long-term basis. And these trends are probably going to stick with us for some time. Hey, Russ, great to catch up with you. Russ Kostrick, BlackRock Global Allocation Fund Portfolio Manager on the latest in markets. Lisa, would love your insight on what's happening in fixed income right now. High yield spreads have tightened up, but there are still some cracks within high yield and within leverage loans. That's exactly what I was going to to talk about. I mean, honestly, you're seeing Fitch, for example, increase their default fault forecast over the next 12 months for leveraged loans from two to three and a half percent, which is a pretty big jump. And it's on some specific problems. But you are seeing uh, certain loans, certain bonds fall out of bed. Today, we saw Murray Energy file for bankruptcy protection. This is a uh, private coal miner, the biggest one, uh, going bust despite some of the uh, rescue plans from President Trump. You're seeing uh, PG&E bonds absolutely getting crushed uh, in the wake of the potential for more damages uh, from the fires in California disrupting the currency bankruptcy the current uh, bankruptcy plan and you know you're seeing some banks getting stuck with uh with leveraged buyout loans on their books because people don't want to buy them the question is how i don't want to use the word because i think that this might be a drinking game I was going right there. Uh, you pouring <laughs> first. Are you, are we pour, are we pouring the shot? Right right you're going right for the drink. Are we or are you going right okay. for the uh, idiosyncratic? <laughs> we got, we, do we have time to go back to Kostrick on this? Let's go Greek quickly, letters, Russ. 60 seconds. Really quickly here. The bottom line, as Lisa brilliantly brings up, is idiosyncratic versus systemic risk, that epsilon on the back of every equation. Is the epsilon out there right now? Is this systemic or is it all idiosyncratic, the 14 things Lisa mentioned? I think it's largely idiosyncratic. I mean, there are pockets of the market where you do want to be worried about credit, but most of these instances, and again, it's probably not a coincidence we're talking about a coal company, they tend to be more idiosyncratic. Yo, I'll say, so are, we, are we doing tequila shots? That's called a six-pack. Well, right? <laughs> for, for our listeners that so may have, for that? our listeners that may have accidentally tuned into this program, can I just explain what this, what this game is? <laughs> our drinking game on Bloomberg Surveillance is when the guest says idiosyncratic shot. Can we say it and then take a shot? But it's not just a shot. I was led there, so in my defense. We say good morning worldwide to the Monkey Bar. See the Monkey Bar at East 54th Street. It's pretty good. Pretty good? The shot's there the size of an old-fashioned glass. Is that what we're going to do on this show? I don't know. I hope not. Equity futures this morning, down about a tenth of 1%. Russ, great to catch up with you. Let's bring in Peter Dixon, shall we? Commerce Bank Global Equities Economist. Peter, great to catch up with you. European outperformance. I've got people lining up around the corner telling me about that here in the United States now. Peter, why does that make sense? 
Well, I, I guess it makes sense because, you know, the Europe has surprised on the downside for, for such, a, such a long time that, you know, given that we're seeing the global equities locomotive being pulled by the U.S., um, you know, there's scope for Europe to catch up. But I have to say that given the uh, concerns that many people have regarding the economic outlook in the, in the Eurozone particularly, um, you know, you might find that uh, that European outperformance doesn't actually materialise. So I think I'd be a bit careful about that one. Well, let's talk about it, Peter. The sentiment has certainly shifted. Are you saying the data won't back it up? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we are. I mean, basically, the, the European economy looks very sluggish, certainly compared to the United States. Um, it's likely that the data out in a couple of weeks' time will show that a second consecutive quarterly contraction in German GDP. Now, I, I guess the, on the positive side, you could argue that because European markets have been hammered by the US-China trade dispute, the expectation or the hope that uh, we are past the worst there might provide Europe with a bit of a lift. But, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, in my view. Peter, one of the great charms here with your economics is the global scale. Basically, all the money's moved to large cap U.S. as a stereotype, and internationals left and left and left and left behind. Is now the time for an international call? Should we go long, large cap international? Should we go long, EM? Uh, long EM, I mean, I think at the moment, as long as the Federal Reserve is in play, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think I'd probably want to stay clear of EM for now. Once you have more clarity about where the, the Fed goes in you know, 2020 and beyond, that's the time at which you, you might want to do it. You certainly don't want to do it anytime soon. Uh, with regard to European large caps, again, I mean, I, I just reiterate what I said before. Um, it's not yet the time to get to those markets because I think there's too much volatility there. I still think there's too much bad news to come. The corporate earnings season is, is looking well, okay, but the downside is well, you know, there's still downside. Let me cut to the chase. Are you selling into this strength? I mean, as John Farrell mentioned earlier, on a range-bound basis, we're buttressed up against the top of the range, even with SPX highs. Are you selling into this good news? It's probably not a bad idea because, you know, we're coming up towards the end of the year. I think uh, a lot of equity managers or fund managers want to realize the best gains they can. So it's entirely possible that over the course of the coming weeks, once the, the good news from the earnings season is out of the way, you know, we'll start to see a wave of selling. And certainly, you know, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with stocks hitting record highs given all of the, uh, the economic uncertainty. So I know that you're in the equity space on a macro level, but just taking a look at the micro with Beyond Meat, I think that that's a really interesting story. And I want to know whether it's, wait for it, idiosyncratic or whether it's endemic of something larger. They actually reported better than expected earnings, and yet their stock still fell in early trading because it had just gotten run up so much. Is that something that we are going to see, sort of the hopium uh, of future growth getting wiped out of the market? in increasing pockets, particularly in the tech space? I think that's entirely possible. I mean, uh, you know, Beyond Meat is, as you said, it's an idiosyncratic stock, which has yet to show that it can, you know, take its product and broaden it to a a wider audience. Um, But it has a lot of potential. The trouble is, when you've got a a stock like that, which, um, you know, which does have potential, but, you know, is finding it very slow to deliver, once you start to get a big lot of momentum behind it, you do find a lot of willing sellers when, when the, you know, when the price reaches a certain level. And I, I rather suspect that that's going to be one of the, the features going forward over the next few weeks, particularly, as you said, in the tech space, where there are a lot of outfits which have done very well, 
start uh, the Royal question marks against their, uh, you know, their future performance. Peter, where do you think the leadership comes from in this leg of the rally if it continues? That's a key question. No, good question indeed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to come from the US, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I, you know, I think the, the, the market overall, um, you know, uh, although I say that there are potential for downside, I, mean, I, th- I think for the moment at least, it's probably going to hold up for now. Um, and, and I think so long as it does hold up, investors will start to look at other pockets of the world, particularly Europe, and say, actually, you know, the, U- the US is holding up. Maybe it is a bit t- time to f- for, for a bit of a dabble, but as I've just cautioned, you know, that could easily turn around. And I guess the question is, to what extent do you know, investors generally, rather than you know, what I think, what, what do investors think uh, about yeah. the US performance? Peter Dixon, I, I just have to ask one more economic question before we let you go. We've seen the pageantry of Draghi handing off the brass bell or whatever it is to Madame Lagarde as well. How critical is this December 12th meeting for that equity confidence in Europe? Is, is the December 12th ECB meeting one that they just get through and move on? Or can it actually have substance? Well, I think it's definitely one that they just have to get through because basically Christine Lagarde has been handed a legacy that she has to deal with. Uh, it's very difficult to know exactly you know, what she's going to do differently to Draghi. So I think Marcus will be looking at this meeting and saying, well, let's hope she doesn't drop the ball. Um, the likelihood is she won't. She's a very experienced operator, but she's not going to do anything with the ball once she's got it. It's just a question of you know, avoiding right. the, the, the pitfalls. Peter, thank you so much. Peter Dixon with Commerce Bank this morning on the equity markets. PMIs is a reason to bring in Matthew Lizzetti of Deutsche Bank because it's front and center. He's got that chart. Uh, To cut to the chape, Matthew, and we could talk to you for two hours this morning, the first and second derivatives of global PMIs are not pretty, are they? I think you you have seen some stabilization in in the global PMIs. If you look at global manufacturing, it's been kind of bouncing around at at low levels over the past few months. Uh, I think you will continue to see that. You've seen U.S. data on the sentiment side a bit mixed recently. But the ISM, we think, bounces back a little bit um, later this, this week as well on Friday, which will be an important data point. All told, I think what we're seeing for the U.S. growth outlook is you, you still have a deceleration built in. The phase right. one deal we got in place at this point was not enough, I think, to flip that second derivative in a more positive direction. What's the second derivative of the, the chairman's press conference tomorrow? I mean, it's extraordinary. You people nail the mid-cycle importance of this. How can we mid be mid-cycle umpteen years into a lift? It's a good question. I, I, there's a emerging view, I think, that Powell is going to orchestrate a, a hawkish cut um, tomorrow. We think that he does raise the bar uh, for another cut. I think when you look at the committee, uh, they they have framed this as as three rate cuts. But I think it's far too early for him to take December off the table. We we still have uncertainties on the trade front and Brexit. The data has continued to decelerate. And the market is only pricing about six basis points at this point. So the Fed doesn't really need to actively push against that pricing. John, if we start a ban, can we please call it hawkish cut? We can call it hawkish cut. That works for me. What in God's name, Matthew, is a hawkish cut or a dovish hike? For our listeners that have just tuned in, this is the Fed call from Deutsche Bank's chief U.S. economist. Matt Lizzetti, go on, continue. (laughs) That's definitely the prevailing market view. Uh, the idea that they will cut, but but guide towards uh, less likelihood of cuts over the next few months. I think that the market has, has gone a little bit too far on, on that point. You know, on, on these uncertainties that, that they've been worried about, they're still there. As you noted, global growth remains low. 
in the U.S. data, you know, tomorrow for U.S. GDP, we're likely to print, we think, at 1.5 percent um, with equipment spending and capbacks being actually negative in that, that story. Uh, so that, I think, is an environment in which he'd be, Powell and the committee should be reluctant to, to firmly back off about the, the dovish guidance. Do you think that at this point the Fed has the capacity to allow inflation to increase, or is that totally out of their purview, given the fact they have been unable to do so until now? I don't think it's totally out of their purview, um, but it is significantly outside of what they can control. Uh, the, the San Francisco Fed has done this nice analysis about yep. pro-cyclical versus acyclical uh, components. We, we've done some work um, which I think suggests that the Fed can influence even more than what the San Francisco Fed thinks. Um, but the, the extent to which they can do that is, is very limited, particularly <clears throat> in a world where health care inflation is a key driver um, and is largely dictated by health care policy, yeah. not necessarily the business. When you X out health care, what's the inflation run rate? We've got Cleveland and Dallas trimmed up, up, up. Everybody listening to this program across America knows that higher inflation rate. They're living, think tuitions. And down below, you've got this core number guys like you are looking at. X out health care. What's the disinflation rate? Well, in, in, for core PCE, it's actually pretty close to what the, the core CPE reading is, is showing. For core CPI, it's actually a much different story because there you've had health, health insurance inflation has been rising 10% year-on-year, or sorry, 20% year-on-year, uh, and it's adding about uh, 30 basis points to the core CPI index. So if you X that out of core CPI, we're, we're closer to you know 2.2%, 2.1% core CPI uh, than, than the yeah. current readings that we were seeing. This has been great. Matt Lizetti, Thanks, thank Matt. you so much. Really, really appreciate it. Brilliant work from Deutsche Bank. Right now, this is a really fascinating interview, and it is a fascinating story. It's always been a little bit of that Florida hype. It is AutoNation peaking in 2015. It's been a challenge since then. Uh, giving way to their esteemed finance professional, her name is Cheryl Miller out of James Madison, and joins us today on 325 auto dealerships. Everybody knows it's a fractious, wonderfully visceral company as well. What was the first day like taking over? How many phone calls? Calls did you get from how many dealers? I need this. I need this. I need this now. What was the first day like? The great thing about the first day was twenty six thousand people emailed me, the associates of AutoNation, and a lot yeah. of our field leadership teams, associates in the stores. That was amazing. Everyone from the industry who I'd known for years emailed me and said, "What are you going to stand luck. for?" Etc. <laughs> and, it, and it was fantastic. And, and I was right there with Mike Jackson, our amazing executive chair now. And so it was a really great first day. Yeah, but come on, this, day. Is, this is, it's been a great first day, but this has been controversial as a roll-up, Wayne Zinga and all that. Years ago, it's a roll-up of the auto industry. I got a number of ways to go here. First, the, the business and then the financials. What, what I really want to know, and to me, the history is always what's on the lots. What's the inventory look like the across inventory. your dealerships right now? It looks 7,000 units lower than it did last How year. How did you do that? On price? Move them out? We, we actually, we did, we did a combination of things. So we, we priced smartly. And if you look at our new vehicle sales, you've got an optimal balance between units and pricing. So we had pretty solid pricing, but we also ordered smart. So we centrally ordered right. and we really managed that. So if you think about our day supply, it's at 55 days versus 63 last year. That's Where would that have been 10 years ago? 
you know, give it, you know, slow down machine. Normally 55 to 65 would be the normal balance of what you want in automotive new. And when it gets to 75, 85, you start to get nervous. Your business down the income statement is a five cents on the dollar business. I mean, you got net income. If you come up a little bit, the market, you know, it's like a grocery store business almost. How are you holding margins and, and it, it, on a differential basis, trying to improve margins right now. How do you service. do that? So the great thing as a retailer is we have a service component to our business. So margins. So you're charging more per hour for my Porsche? What is it hourly cost on a Porsche to service it at AutoNation? Depends what you need done on it. So we, we blend the labor. So if you need an oil. Oh, you oil, blend the labor yeah, while you, you blend me the free change, coffee, right? Yeah, if you need an oil change, we're not going to charge you the same as if you need a skilled tech. But if you're working on a complex vehicle, if you're working on a 911, or if you're working What's on an autonomous. Uh, we, we don't usually give our blended rate. but You don't uh, give your blended depends. rate? I got the blended rate the other day. <laughs> Yeah, I would say it, it depends what you need done. And the blended rate varies depending on what we're working on. I'm not going to get an answer out of here. You're anyway. not, not today. Lisa, take over here with Cheryl Miller of AutoNation. <laughs> I'm not going to ask about your detailing and your rims that you got on your uh, on your car. Or we we the need fact, to get them another one. I mean, They all say service is great. And then the fact is you get the bill and you're like... Whoa! Well, it might be great, but you know, you're going to have to pay great digital and transparency, and Um, it's a great point. I'm curious about uh, sort of how you're getting consumers to buy. Are you extending more loans at this point uh, in order to finance those purchases? So credit's healthy, and the reality of our industry is the majority of vehicles are purchased on credit. I feel good about the state of credit. So I was just meeting. Uh, two weeks ago with the CEO of one of the largest lenders in the country. And his indication was credit looks solid. So you, you hear some noise sometimes out in the industry about it, but it's actually in pretty good shape right now. So we feel good about the consumer. We feel good about affordability generally, understanding that people are opting for nearly new. So not everyone's able to afford new. Uh, you're killing me. What? What's nearly new? It's like it's the a least nice use, But when you think about the traditional use, sometimes you think about a 12-year-old used vehicle. We're okay, talking about a three-year-old BMW. vehicle. BMW pioneered this. They came out with certified pre-owned. Yeah, certified pre-owned. That's the future, isn't it? Have you priced most of America out of the average cost of an average car that people aspire to? Well, I would say BMW probably isn't isn't just the average. So if you think about it, we offer 31 brands. And so we offer something for everyone. So if you have children and you need a third row seat, we have it. If you want to go with something smaller with better fuel economy, Lisa we have that and I as well. Want the, we want the car with no children's seats. That's right. We <laughs> want, okay, you, that's why you have a Porsche. <laughs> with us right and, now. Uh, yeah, so you're definitely, we definitely have something for both of you. Well, I'm trying to understand uh, if you're not concerned about consumer credit, even though we have seen delinquencies and serious delinquencies among auto loans pick up quite a bit, uh, and you're seeing robust demand, what is a potential risk that you have your eye on? So I'd say just to be clear, you're seeing an increase from historically low rates. So as people talk about delinquency rates, they hit such a low point that, yeah, they're certainly increasing, but they're not increasing to the point where it's completely concerning. It's something we always keep our eyes out on. And I would say from a consumer perspective, we are in plateau. So if you think about new vehicle sales, we're definitely in plateau. You did see the strength in used vehicle sales. So total market is fine. Customers are employed. So when consumers come in the stores, they have jobs. They need to get to those jobs with vehicles. So nothing worries you. There's a number of things that, that worry me, but uh, I'm not nowhere near as worried as I was at the end of last year. So now that I have two interest rate 
cuts rather than three hikes, I feel like there's a little bit of a tailwind, but definitely healthy consumer. There's been some volatility out in the broader yeah. landscape and you have to be worried about it. Let's go, you know, away from the fancy cars An F1. I just put on your wonderful website an F100 pickup in there. I mean, it's the vanilla of vanilla. How do you make profit on these trucks that Detroit tells us is where all the profit is? Do you make the profit by the price you buy it from the automakers? Do you make it on add-ons and all that? Where's the profit come from? It's a great question. So the F-150, the Ford F-150 is the top selling vehicle in America and it continues to be so. So we make money some money on the front of selling that vehicle. But the good thing for customers pricing wise right. is dealers don't don't charge a lot of markup on the front of that. We do make money for arranging the financing. We also make money on the service the end of the business. The service end of it is is really what it's become, right? Yeah, it's a lot a lot of our profitability do is need, from service. Do you need immigrants to keep your service going? I mean, where are you on immigration and the emotion of that in Florida? Yeah, so what we need to keep our service business going is amazing technicians, and technicians are harder to come by. Where do you get them? We get them from all different places. We get them from the military. The military is a great source for technicians. We get them from trade schools, and we also build them internally. So we train people internally. Should I tell her the day I put the screw down the Barracuda Chrysler distributor cap engine? I want to hear this story. I Please. don't know that you're qualified it's, to be one of our technicians. Okay, carry on. Really? You don't think so? <laughs> you <laughs> might be. My just father failed. said, use the magnetic <laughs> screwdriver. No. I didn't. Sweeney knows this story. Oh, I mean, man. use the magnetic still, screwdriver. No. I know really better than this. you. If you lift the hood these days, it's really hard to work on the vehicles. And if you think about our relationship yeah. with Waymo, so Alphabet's uh, independent yeah. subsidiary in autonomous vehicles, we're doing the servicing for them and we've been doing that in okay. phoenix for over two years now show miller thank you so much she is with auto nation 325 dealers worldwide they they do such a job in the bentley paul it's oh just well, you got to keep it in top shape i mean it's honestly just, bentley you know, and bmw bentley, detailing it's rims like, really it's like tall. i just Right now we're going beyond, no, not going out to the McDonald's on 3rd Avenue. We're breaking barriers. We're defying convention. <laughs> Paul, we are shattering expectations. <laughs> and it's just got to be beyond meat crumbles. They're beefy. What is it, dog food? I mean, there we are, beyond meat. They got it. They got everything, it seems like. And they had a, beyond know, I thought burger. it was a very good quarter last night, yet the stock futures are down 20%, something about a lockup period expiring or something. Beyond meat, Mediterranean skewers. <laughs> they got it all. Jen Bartash's Bloomberg Intelligence uh, joins us on the phone. Jen covers uh, all the restaurants and the consumer stuff, and uh, she really knows this Beyond Meat story. So, Jen, give us a sense. I thought they had a, a pretty good quarter, actually a very good quarter last night. What's going yeah. on with the stock? Uh, good morning. Yeah, so Beyond Meat actually did have a really good quarter last night. Um, they had positive net income for the first time in their company's history. And one of the concerns around the company is, you know, the path to profitability. Um, and they made great strides towards that. Um, you know, what's weighing down the stock, you, as you mentioned, Paul, it's it's about the expiration of the lockup period from the IPO, um, the opportunity for those initial stakeholders to sell some of those shares, um, as well as uh, increased uh, concerns about the competition and some of the big players that are getting into this space. Well, the competition story, I know that was, that's been out there as risk number one from day one. I'm just kind of wondering what's changed. Did they get on a call yesterday, maybe spook people with some commentary about competition? 
Well, I think they were trying to head off concerns about con- uh, about competition, but you're right. It has been there from the very beginning. And I think one of the things that, that Beyond Meat has to its advantage is, is that when people try something that is a brand new kind of product, um, when they adopt it for home at-home consumption, they generally stick with the one that they've tried. Um, it's, it's harder to get people to just explore and go into a new product without any experience with it. And so that is one of the advantages Beyond Meat has against some of these bigger CPG companies that are bringing their own products to market, um, that they've had the chance to try it in a restaurant um, and and then have the comfort level of preparing it at home. I mean, I got to look at this thing from 60,000 feet. And Jen, you know, you're very good at this. The the moonshot of expectations took it up to a price to sales of 16. And with Mm -hmm. growing sales, as you say, they're delivering on the dream. Great. They're almost down to, to reality, seven times, eight times price to sales. I mean, when does this thing get priced more as a traditional food analysis versus all the hoopla? Well, it's a good question, and I think part of that is is a, there's a little bit of time to go. Um, yeah, fair. Part, you know, part of what's interesting about this this particular company is that it's more like a technology company than a food company, and that's part of what sparked so much of the interest in it is the innovation and the fact that they're bringing something to this this sector that is revolutionary and and hasn't really. Um, and, and an industry that really hasn't changed that much over the years. So I, I think that you're, the answer to that question is that uh, it's still going to be a little bit of time before it settles into being considered a, a true peer to some of the other companies in the space. So, Jen, do we have a comfort level as investors in this new space that this is not a fad, that this represents the synthetic food, or synthetic meat represents a real long-term category within, I guess, the food sector? Well, the underlying trends and the, the demographics of who's buying, you know, who are buying these products really suggest at this point that this is a long-term trend and not necessarily a fad. Um, you've got, uh, it's a younger generation, it's a more affluent generation that tends to, to, to purchase these products. Um, families tend to purchase these products. Um, and at the same time, at the other end of the demographic spectrum, you have baby boomers who are starting to retire and are paying more attention to health concerns. And many people are looking for an opportunity to make a small improvement in the way that they eat on a regular basis. And if people feel better about swapping yeah. out meat for one meal with a meat alternative, um, then then that helps sustain this long-term trend. Jen, I'm looking at the technical chart here. It's a fancy log chart with a bunch of fancy moving averages, and the fancy is south. The vector is south. Is there a pressure to turn around the share performance now, or do they just go on with their business plan? Well, I think I think from a management perspective, their plan is to continue on course as yeah. it's laid out. Um, yeah. You know, whether whether investors are expecting some kind of alteration from that course, yeah. it's still early to tell. Can I ask a dumb question? There What's a price a versus a hamburger? I mean, you know, all these food variants they've got. Is it cheaper than meat? Not yet, and that is one of the things that that Beyond Meat is 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 focused on is bringing their products closer to price parity with meat. Yeah. Um, there's still there's still it's still more expensive, and many of the retail stores it's about twenty percent more expensive um, on a per pound basis. Um, and but part of what Beyond Meat was talking about is that they plan to make investments to help bring that price gap lower and to I close mean, it, on. and that'll also help sustain that long term trend. Beyond Beef Italian Meatballs that's on America. 
and beef. It, I tell you, there's sausage, there's hot. It's just, it's everywhere. Jen Bartashes, thanks so much for okay, now, joining now, us. Uh, yeah, I'm on what the edge. Is Jen, I'm on the edge of Zweigel's anger here. Zweigel's the best hot dog in the world. Good morning, Rochester and Buffalo, New York. <laughs> Beyond Sausage Chicago Dog. Yeah. You're putting the name Chicago in with Beyond Meat, Jen. Are you, are, are you going to bring this up with the CEO today? We are. We're Jen's going to be taking notes. I know. Well, she's get, sending me some questions, hopefully. Ethan Brown, he is the president, this is CEO, not a and founder of 1115 today on Bloomberg Radio. They, they, they go Beyond Sausage Portland Dog. Or, Maybe you know, bring something Santa Fe Dog. <laughs> it's not a Chicago dog, it's a Santa Fe dog. Jen Bark, she killed that. She this does. is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.